we don't often go deeper to say in what ways does it affect them. And so I studied this population of children and youth as caregivers because I saw it in practice. I saw it in people's homes and it just had such an impact on me. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Connecting ALS. I am one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson, and I am joined, as usual, by my co-host, Jeremy Holden. Jeremy, we're in the second full week of ALS Awareness Month, and we've seen and heard some really important stories shared by families living with ALS across much of social media so far. We have, and I'm looking forward to hearing more of those. As you said, Mike, we're just about two weeks into ALS Awareness Month, so a lot more time to share a lot more stories. And really, you know, it's kind of what it's all about is, you know, coming together to kind of tell the story about ALS to folks who who may not know, and also just kind of raise awareness about where we are in the fight and how people can get involved and really help push that fight forward. Well said, and we've been looking forward to this episode as well, because as some of our listeners may know, this Saturday, May 16th, is ALS Youth Action Day, where kids and teens and young adults from all over the country unite to take a stand against ALS. And Jeremy, tell our listeners what some of the ways are that people can participate in Youth Action Day. Yeah, happy to. You know, Mike, about 1.4 million children across the country serve as a caregiver of some kind. And, and certainly that's very true for the community that we serve and folks living with ALS. Lots of kids serving as caregivers. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't really get into this conversation without thinking back to the chat we had just a few short weeks ago with Mark Kalmas, you know, with that the Jane Kalmas ALS Scholarship Fund. Mm. One way to kind of support kids who have been impacted uh, by the devastating cost of ALS. And of course, this Saturday is, as you mentioned, another way where kids can kind of be empowered to join the fight at any age, really, and whatever it is that is their passion. Obviously, with with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're unable to have mass gatherings to raise awareness. So we had to get a little creative this year and really create a toolkit that lets kids engage more online advocacy, whether that's becoming an advocate and writing a letter to your member of Congress and, and explaining how ALS has impacted you and why you think it's important to fully fund research at the federal level into treatments and a cure or make sure that our public policies are empowering of people living with this disease. We've already seen some kids across the country, and uh, we can share this in the show notes, posting images of their ALS hero and saying why it is that they are part of this, why they're engaging in youth action, taking the youth challenge, setting up a fundraiser. You know, let's be honest about this, this fight that we're waging, you know, it costs money to do research, to bring mm-hmm. a drug to development. We can share the story of one kid, Sydney Carroll, who heard about the fight and said, hey, mom, here's $6. It's what I got in the piggy bank. I want to contribute this to the cause and went online and said, can you match my $6? And then that's grown now to a little over 6000 Wow. So all kinds of different ways that kids can be empowered to take their passion, take their talents and, and use it to try and help raise awareness and funds for the fight against ALS. 
Very cool story. There's a lot of those out there. And we'll also link to the toolkit that Jeremy mentioned on ALS.org. So you can check that out. As you said, in spite of the pandemic changing the way that the world operates so that we all stay safe, I do hope that we see a big response from America's youth on Saturday in, in spreading awareness any way they can. And I'm sure that we will. Looking forward to that. And for this episode, we thought who better to talk to than an expert on youth caregiving and ALS. And there may be no one better in the world on that subject than Dr. Melinda Cavanaugh at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Yeah, that's right. Dr. Kavanaugh has put together a couple resource guides for the ALS Association. She's written a couple books for kids who have ALS to try and help them kind of understand the disease and really make sense of how it's impacting them. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's not a better person I can think of to have this conversation with. Dr. Kavanaugh's researched different elements of caregiving and neurological disorders for most of her career, and we, we had a great conversation with her. Let's listen back to the interview we recorded with Dr. Melinda Kavanaugh now. We are joined on the phone today by renowned researcher and educator, Dr. Melinda Kavanaugh of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Doctor, thank you so much for being with us on Connecting ALS today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be with you all. Yeah, it's great. It's great to talk to you. Uh, we'll, we'll get into your research and why we uh, wanted to speak to you today in just a moment. But do you mind if we ask kind of how the current situation with the global pandemic is impacting your work at the moment? Are you able to move forward virtually? Oh, um, that that's a very, <laughs> that that's a tough question to answer. Because of the type of work that I do, I am a primary data collection, a lot of qualitative work type of researcher. So my work really depends on sitting down with individuals and interviewing and going into people's homes. And it has been uh, tremendously impacted, quite frankly. I have several research projects ongoing. All of them are in some status of either a holding pattern, because uh, one of the projects I have, I have an NIH grant looking at caregiving in our most vulnerable populations. So in our Latino and African-American communities here in the city of Milwaukee in Alzheimer's and related dementias. And the next phase of that study requires focus groups with older adults and their children and youth who are their caregivers. So those certainly can't be going on right now. Also, because I do a lot of work with vulnerable and isolated populations, the technology is just not there. Whether it's access to computers, which surprisingly a lot of people have, but really the biggest issue is access to the internet, that so many of the families that I work with just don't have that access. So yes, it's been tremendously impacted. I do a lot of work in South Africa, and every summer I go, and this summer we were planning a next level of our project funded by the ALS Association. And, you know, unfortunately, that's also on hold, not simply because travel is kind of difficult at this point, but also recruiting individuals throughout South Africa who are in lockdown and quarantine as well. So it has tremendously affected my research. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That sounds incredibly frustrating. And, you know, obviously everybody is dealing with some of the challenges that the coronavirus and the COVID pandemic has created, but uh, certainly no mm -hmm. less so with you and your work. Let's take a step back and talk a little bit about what that work is. You talked a little bit about caregiving, focus groups, some interviewing and qualitative research, but let's get into, let's get into it. Talk to us a little bit about the research that you're doing, the questions that you're asking. Yeah. So my primary 
questions that I ask or the area that I am so deeply interested in is around caregiving, but I dig into the roles that children and youth play as a caregiver, as a care support, oftentimes even a primary caregiver to family members, be it a parent, be it a grandparent, an aunt, uncle. That is such a vulnerable and under-addressed, under-acknowledged caregiving population. And so all of my research has some aspect of that. Like, is it across different disease populations? Is it that um, we're looking at children who are kind of doubly vulnerable, if you will, because they belong to very disenfranchised and often deeply discriminated against populations? So I'm a caregiving researcher writ large, a little more focused on children and youth who are caregivers. So yeah, kind of in a in a statement, that's the kind of work that I do and the populations that I'm really most passionate and interested in. Can I ask what brought you to that line of work? What was your path that you decided this is where I want to focus my career? Yeah, absolutely. I get asked that a lot because it's such a niche right. <laughs> caregiving group. In addition to being a professor in social work, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I have been for many years. And how I got into this was because I am a social worker. And the most formative social work practice experience I had was actually in the neurology department at Washington University School of Medicine. And in that department, you know, neurology certainly encompasses a variety of disorders, and I happen to be situated in movement disorders. So um, Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, dystonias, essential tremors, whatnot. And I was the social worker in a sea of, you know, neurologists and neuropsychologists. And so I had this extraordinary opportunity to be involved in clinic visits, home visits, nursing home visits, hospital calls, uh, because the area that I primarily focused on at that point was Huntington's disease, which is quite a rare disorder, yeah. but it is incredibly complex. And the family issues around Huntington's disease are often the most primary kind of presenting issue, if you will. And so I would go to home visits or I would go to nursing homes and there were almost always a child around. But I will tell you, and I tell my students this all the time, my university students, one of the things that I'm so kind of sad about, but I'm also so proud of is that I recognized I wasn't asking the right questions because I would talk with the kids and say, oh gosh, it must be difficult to have a parent with you know, this disorder. Then what I found is that I wasn't asking, oh, are you doing something to take care of them? Because mm -hmm. I will never forget one of the most extraordinary times, this youth, he was about 10 years old. And he said, well, you know, the nurse was here showing us how to use a feeding tube. So this is what I do. And I disinfect it and I make sure it's inserted properly. I measure it. I have to hold up the tube so that it drains properly. And I just sat there with my mouth wide open. And that was a real profound moment of when we think about how disease 
affects the individual, it certainly affects everybody around them. But we don't often go deeper to say, in what ways does it affect them? And so I study this population of children and youth as caregivers because I saw it in practice. I saw it in people's homes. And it just had such an impact on me that I set out to say, you know what, I got to figure this out. And at that time, there were Oh, very, maybe a couple people in the U.S. at the most who were doing anything with this population. And Mm -hmm. so it really encouraged me to go get my Ph.D. and become a researcher and a real advocate for those kids. It's a really great story. And and I have to say, Dr. Kavanaugh, your passion for, for the subjects that you study is evident in the way you talk about it here and in some of the resources that you've pulled together for our community. And uh, yeah. you, you talked about Huntington's disease, and, and we can share some of that, of course, in the show notes. But you, you talked about your path into this kind of through Huntington's disease and some of the research that you did there. You've also done a lot of work with ALS caregivers. For anyone who may not be as familiar with your work and some of the initiatives that have come out of it, summarize some of your findings. What have you seen and observed with the ALS community as it relates to youth caregiving? Absolutely. You know, I, if I may, I'll put a little plug in because when I came to the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee, I cold called or cold emailed, I suppose, the ALS multidisciplinary clinic. I personally didn't know a lot about ALS. I had kind of slightly dabbled in it in my time at WashU, but I wasn't by any means focused on it. And I emailed their multidisciplinary clinic and I said, gosh, you know, this is, I work on children and youth who are caregivers. I understand there's really nothing for kids out there. Can I meet with you? And to my eternal happiness. Dr. Paul Barkow said, absolutely, come meet with me. And that was the beginning of a beautiful relationship because that right there, he opened up a lot of discussion around what do we know about ALS? What's going on with these families? And it made me realize that there are so many opportunities in this world of ALS. And so through that meeting, I have been extraordinarily lucky to have a number of grant-funded initiatives through the ALS Association. Because what What we found is through a lot of conversations is that, um, and this is very typical across other disease organizations, is that there's a lot of focus on the individual with the illness. There's a fair amount of focus on the person who's the caregiver, but that person is always identified as an adult. So then when it trickles down to the children and youth in the family, there are kind of scattershot initiatives. And so what has been amazing is my opportunity to engage with not only the National Association, but many chapters across the country. And not only by doing research, so I've interviewed children and youth who have a family member with ALS. We did an online survey with their adults kind of asking them, what is that experience of having a child help you with care? How do you feel about that? What are some of the resources you need? So we've done um, research studies in that area. And one of the biggest, I will say actually two of the biggest things that came out of those interviews in that survey was one, a lack of just general information about the disease, the process, and how kids talk about it and get supported for it. And two, that they're doing a load of care and they have almost no training or guidance in how to do it. So 
you know, just to kind of sit with that, that these are children as young as six that I have interviewed who are really grappling with what's going on in their families. And the adults in the families are often so struggling and just emotionally smacked with a diagnosis of ALS that can move so very quickly and be so very detrimental to these families. So I have been fortunate to do a lot of projects with the ALS Association. My first project was a book for families. So it was a family guide. And I used, again, those surveys and those interviews to really lay out some ways that families can think about talking to their children about ALS, helping families understand that there are a lot of ways that children's lives are impacted, you know, school and peers, and then also around these issues of death and dying, which, you know, we as a society do a really poor job of just wrapping our minds and hands around, you know. And then the next set of projects or deliverables was a set of three books for children, youth, and young adults. And again, all of that information in there was drawn from not only my clinical practice and my prior research projects, but specifically from the interviews with these kids and these young adults. So we have three books. One is a graphic novel for young children. Another one is kind of like what I think about a a choose-your-own-adventure book, if you will. So there are real kids in these stories, and someone can pick that up and kind of say, well, I wonder what it would be like if, if I was living this person's you know, choices. Because my dad has ALS, I want to know what they did. And then the third book is really more, it's a much more serious book. And it's for young adults, because those are the individuals who are making decisions about, do I go to college or stay home to care for my parent? Do I get married? Do I have the kids? How do I juggle all of those things? So those were those are kind of the written materials. But then the the training piece, for the past almost six years now, I have been working with chapters across the country to develop and implement something we call Why Care, with a why, not why the question, but right. why care, that really gets at these are kids who need to be guided in the care that they're providing. So kids are already doing care. But what we do in this day-long program is give them the support, give them the specific guidance, the strategies to deal with care. And it's all delivered by a multidisciplinary group of professionals who work in ALS. So we're talking social workers, respiratory therapists, speech-language pathologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, and neurologists. And they all come together for a day and they take different modules and help kids understand what's the proper way to lift somebody when you're two feet shorter than them? How do you help someone transfer from a bed to a chair? And so these kids get to do this alongside other kids because there's a huge gap in that peer support because they go to school And as a 12-year-old, you don't really want to tell your friend that you gave your mom a bath last night. But when you go to the Y-Care training, you can say, I gave my mom a bath last night. And the kid sitting next to you will say, yeah, well, I had to toilet my dad this morning. 
Mm-hmm. So out of the incredible support I have received from the ALS Association through funding and grants, those are the things that I've been able to collaborate with the most amazing folks across the country to really provide for our children and youth who are living in families with ALS. Those are such important resources that you're describing. And doctor, uh, thank you really for all of your work in this area. I can tell you firsthand that our care service team at the ALS Association here in Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota raves about uh, the literature that, that you put out and you worked on and they use it all the time and consider it such a valuable resource when they're speaking to youth caregivers and families about some of the changes they're going to be seeing. And, and it's just for a group that was, as you mentioned, had, had largely not been addressed, what you've done in the, in the past few years is really, it's incredible. Oh, thank you. I that, that means to hear that chapters are using it and giving it to their families, that's, oh, every week. that's just the best thing that, that I could hear. Gosh, thank you so much. I know that the global population is still adjusting to the pandemic and the needs that various groups and individuals have at the moment and are going to have in the near future. Mm-hmm. And clearly, you uh, as a researcher won't be able to study the impact of what we hope is a, a relatively brief moment in time. But just anecdotally, have you uh, heard from or engaged with any families that are living with ALS during the pandemic about how this environment has changed things for them and maybe their kids as well? You know, I have not personally met with or talked with, but what I have done is I get a lot of emails from folks across the different chapters across the country because they know that that's a real primary research area of mine is the children and youth. So so I have actually gotten quite a few emails from chapters saying, you know, we have families who are really struggling with this or with this. And I will tell you, the biggest things that families are struggling with is now that kids are home, they are really having a hard time with the teaching. So trying to figure out how to be a teacher. But then the kids, their extra time at home isn't simply just to be a student. That extra time at home is also more engaged in care. So my my concern about a time like this is school is often the one place that children and youth who are, whether they're caregivers or they have a family member with an illness, it's often their safe space or their respite from that stress and anxiety and tremendous upheaval that's going on at home. So in the absence of that, you know, that's a concern of mine is that how how are these kids getting an outlet? How are they getting that respite? You know, quite frankly, we should think about the adults as well. You know, they're teaching and they're caring. You know, the adults, they're, they're caregivers, they're now teacher teaching their kids. So the complexities of stay at home, I don't think we always grasp how really overwhelming it can be for families like those who are living with ALS, who now Mm -hmm. those kind of safe spaces are gone and they can't be connected with right now. That's such an insightful observation. Thank you for bringing that up. Just the extent to which caregiver burnout is something that you know we in our community talk about pretty regularly, and and the question of whether that becomes exacerbated in, in this time of, of social distancing and and, and staying at home uh, more regularly. Very very fascinating to to think about that. Dr. Kavanaugh, you talked earlier about 
the extent to which kids can be uncomfortable talking about some of their caregiver responsibilities with their peers. And mm-hmm. it's interesting to think about that as we're approaching Saturday, which is the second annual ALS Youth Action Day. But broadly speaking, what are some things, what are some ways that kids can be empowered to join the fight to just really take those opportunities for empowerment as they're going through this journey? Ah, such a good, good question. One of the things that I have learned from the kids that I've interviewed over the years is when they are able to kind of present or take the lead on something related to ALS, it does. It gives them that empowerment and that confidence. And one way, now it's it's a little bit hindered because they're not in their classroom, but I will tell you when I ask kids over and over, when they're given the opportunity to present to their class, to their school, do a talk about ALS, bring in their family member, because one thing we also need to, to recognize is that there is some bullying that goes on because family members who are living with ALS, you know, they use different devices. They use power chairs. They might be on something that helps them breathe or read or communicate. And so kids can look at that in a way that makes them be uncomfortable and other kids can quote unquote, other them because of it. So when we encourage youth to stand up and say, hey, let's do a talk about ALS in your school, present to your class, do something at, you know, a pep rally or, or whatever it is to really educate them, bring in someone to talk about it. It raises that awareness. And then from there, then they can say, well, okay, now everybody knows what's going on here. Let's do a walk. Let's do a walk for ALS. And then you can get outside of that school. Then you've got your neighbors and you have your community because you're walking through the community and saying, you know, I'm 12 and I want everyone to know that ALS is in my family, but it's not the only thing about our family. So it's an opportunity to build awareness, to get out there and do an activity. But it's also something that I can't tell you how many kids have talked about this particular thing over the years. The need to feel like their family is still normal because they feel so abnormal and they're not, again, kind of they're othered or potentially bullied by, you know, quote unquote, normal kids. They want everyone to say, this is just our family's thing. You know, your family has your thing. My family has my thing. And so doing something in school to kind of break that ice and do a talk or, you know, next step is to do a walk or a basketball tournament or, you know, there are kids out there that are doing lemonade stands. You know, I think we often don't give kids the credit for coming up with really cool ideas that they can come up with. And I think that the most important takeaway for whether it's Youth Action Day or frankly, every day is engage kids in that conversation. Keep asking them, connect with them. What do you guys think? What would you want to do? You know, because they may come up with something that, you know, as someone who's not a kid and not very technically savvy, they may have some very other wonderful idea that doesn't have to do with a walk. So I think my takeaway there is Ask them, ask them, ask them, bring them to the table, give them the respect that they deserve for, for knowing what's going on because they're, they're very, very involved. 
Doctor, this <laughs> this has been great. It, you know, uh, we're about to wrap up here in a minute. But is there anything though that you think that we we haven't gotten into, we haven't addressed that that you want to make sure we talked about, or any anything that you want to mention or plug? I know I said it earlier, but I think I I just want to really punch up the relationships of the chapters to each other. And the work that the chapters do, I mean, they're just, there's some powerful people out there. So, you know, just kind of punching up the work of the chapters of the association and how critical they are, particularly now, you know, I do a lot of work with the Wisconsin chapter and they are amazing. They are just constantly connecting up with their families. They can't go see them, but they are calling, they are emailing, they do a full online Zoom support group where there's like a hundred people on this Zoom support group. And it's just seeing how they're really stepping up in this just bizarre time we're in. It's just so gratifying. So I think if there's one thing I'd say, I just really want to plug the work of the chapters because they, they do the work and just want to support them in that. Thank you. That's really it's meaningful to hear that, and and we'll pass that on to the Wisconsin chapter as well. They are they're a great group, and we uh, we feel lucky to have as many wonderful colleagues as we do at the ALS Association that are doing their best uh, during the pandemic to support families living with ALS and continue to push our mission forward. And we've been really inspired by a lot of that work. So thanks for mentioning that. Well, as Jeremy mentioned earlier, we are going to link to Dr. Melinda Cavanaugh's faculty page at UW-Milwaukee in our show notes so our listeners can learn more about your critical research. Uh, But doctor, thank you again so much for joining us on the show. This was a really uh, fascinating look into caregiving and youth in the ALS community and beyond. Well, you are very, very welcome. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for asking me to be a part of it. And I wish you all good health and Godspeed. (laughs) Thank you again to Dr. Melinda Cavanaugh at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for walking us through some of the impacts that ALS has on kids, on teenagers, on young adults, and really get that focus on what the impact is and how kids can be empowered to join the fight. We mentioned during the interview that we'd link to Dr. Cavanaugh's faculty page at UW-Milwaukee where you can find a link to some of her research. So be sure to take a look that if you're interested in learning more. Lots of great stuff there. That's going to conclude this episode of Connecting ALS. As always, in addition to our website at connectingals.org, you can find the show and subscribe on many of your favorite podcast services. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to let us know your thoughts and if there are any topics that you'd like us to address in the future. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening. We look forward to connecting with you again soon. (music) 